Well, good morning. And it's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park as you make your way back to your seats. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And as before we turn uh, to the Lord uh, and to His Word, let, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You um, so much for today. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. Lord, in our call to worship, I am just so overwhelmed that how you made yourself known to Moses. Lord, he asked to see your glory, and you proclaimed your name. And through the proclamation of your name, you revealed your glory to him. And Lord, we see that Moses' response to the proclamation of your name is worship. And that should be our response, Lord, as we hear your word, as you proclaim yourself and make yourself known to us, and you give us your commands, Lord, may we respond in worship. May we be in awe of you. Lord, can you um, reveal truth to us and make yourself known? Help us to understand, minister to our hearts, Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know what we're going through. Uh, You know what we're struggling with. You know what we're wrestling with. Can you speak to us? Can you minister to our hearts? Can you encourage us? And for those who do not believe, Lord, can you open up their eyes and make yourself known? Stir their hearts And help them to recognize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And may they respond in faith, saying, Lord, save me. Lord, can you do an incredible work this morning? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So we are finally wrapping up our series through 1 Corinthians. I think we've been in 1 Corinthians for 28 weeks, and so we're going to be in the last chapter. Um, Next week, we're going to start 2 Timothy. Uh, For six weeks, we'll be in 2 Timothy, and then Advent is upon us. It's kind of like the race, the year is just racing by as we're running to the end. Um, But in our text today, um, it's going to seem like we're all over the place. So Paul finally concludes his lengthy letter and really what he does is he gives his final words. He's going to give them his final instructions. He's going to reveal to them his final travel plans and his final commands and then his prayer for them. And so um, I know that Today we're going to be all over the place, so for some of you Taipei people that want this neat outline, I'm really sorry I could not pull it off. Uh, The only way to pull it off is just to break uh, chapter 16 into like four parts, and I just didn't want to do that. Um, So my hope is that as we're all over the place, there'll be a little something for a little bit of everybody, and that somehow we might see this this common thread at the very end. So that's my goal. Um, If you see the common thread at the very end, then I've done my job. If you didn't, then I'm really sorry about that. Uh, so, so let's look at Paul's final instructions here in chapter 16, uh, verses 1. It says this, Now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and, and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. 
So here we see Paul's final instructions. And what, what's happening in the first couple of verses is uh, he's giving them instructions on a collection that is to be made for the believers in Jerusalem, for the saints in Jerusalem. And presumably these saints were poor. And so Paul's responding. Notice he says in verse 1, now about the collection. In other words, more than likely, he's responding to questions that they had about collecting money to give to the church in Jerusalem to support these saints. And the instructions that Paul is giving them is not unique instructions that he's just giving to the church of Corinth, but he's giving them the same instructions he's giving all the other churches. He, he says, I'm giving you the exact same instructions I gave to the churches in the Galatian area. Now, before we actually look at the instructions for collecting money for churches to use and to distribute among the poor inside and outside the church, I want us to understand this principle before we look at the instructions, but the principle is this, is that collecting and distributing money and giving it to the church to distribute to the poor inside and outside the church was not a unique thing that Paul is writing about, but rather it is a biblical instruction that we see throughout the Bible. Now, I don't have time to go through every single text, but I'm going to quickly go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus' time, and then Paul, and then we'll look at the instructions. But here's what we have to understand. To give money to the poor is a biblical practice. In the Old Testament, when, when God gave the law to Moses, God made provision for the poor in the law of Moses. Who were the poor? They were the orphans, they were the widows, they were the refugees, they were the foreigners. And, and so we see in Deuteronomy, you can just write down the reference, I'm going to try to summarize uh, the entire chapter for you, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 10 to 22, this is what God tells his people. The first thing he tells them is, do not hand out unjust loans. In other words, don't give out loans where you're charging an extraordinary amount of interest rate that there's no way they can pay that loan off because all they're paying off is interest. Don't do that. Don't mistreat hired workers. In other words, the workers that are working in your house, that are working in your field, do not treat them unjustly. Pay them what is due to them. At the end of the day, when they've put in the hard work, don't say, I forgot your money. Pay them. Why? Because they need that money to feed their family. Don't deny justice to anyone, even if they're a foreigner. In other words, if there's a foreigner in your midst, they're a resident alien. Just because they're a foreigner, do not deny them justice. But treat them with dignity and respect. And then he says, when, when you're harvesting your field, don't reap to the very ends of the field. When a sheaf of grain falls on the ground, don't pick it up. When your olive trees are producing olives, don't take every single olive that drops on the ground. Why? Because he's making provision for the poor so that those, the orphans, the widows, the refugees, the resident aliens can come into your fields and pick up these sheaves of grain. That they come and pick up these olive branches. And so what are you doing? You're providing for those who are poor. In other words, what, the, what, what God is saying in his law to his people is, look, I'm going to bless you so much. I'm going to provide for you in so much that that provision is going to be abundant, not just for you, but also for the poor. We'll go over to the New Testament. In the New Testament, 
there's this story that that Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, verse 35 to 40. And and basically, it's the separation of the sheep and the goats. Those who belong to him, the sheep are on his right hand, a position of honor. And they're the ones who are inheriting the kingdom of God. And the goats are separated on his left. And they're cast aside for all of eternity where there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. And the sheep, in their mind, saying, "Um, why are we inheriting the kingdom of God? What do we do to deserve this? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25 verse 35 to 40. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and then visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, now we need to understand this, and this is very important. These people did not inherit the kingdom of God because of their actions towards the poor. Okay? And here's why I can say that. Um, What does it mean to inherit something? You get it, right? And what do you do to inherit something? You were born. Did you do that? (laughs) No, you were just simply born. Some of you are very fortunate to inherit a large fortune because you were born into that. Others of you, sorry, you're not going to inherit much. Mom and dad didn't have much money. You were just born into that. And that's what we have to understand. These people inherited the kingdom of God. And they didn't inherit the kingdom of God because of their actions of taking care of the poor. But rather, them taking care of the poor was evident that they were inheriting the kingdom of God. In other words, they were showing the world what the king is like. And what is the king like? He takes care of the poor. And his people are acting like the king. And that's why these right, he calls them righteous people. They're shocked. They're like, um, we didn't do anything. Um, so, so what's the deal? And Jesus is saying, you inherited it and you acted just like me. And they were shocked about it. And this is what we have to see is that we who inherit the kingdom of God are acting like the king who takes care of the poor. Um, one, one more verse. It's very fascinating when Paul was commissioned. Obviously, he was commissioned by Jesus, but the other apostles in Jerusalem kind of validated his commission. And Paul shares um, this to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Um, basically, he goes up to the apostles. And the apostles affirm his commission from Jesus and affirms the mission that Jesus has given him and to go plant churches among the Gentiles, okay? But then, he's, they, then they tell him, this is, there's one thing we want you to remember. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, it says this, when James, Cephas, and John... Those recognized as pillars. In other words, these were the apostles. These were the pillars of the church of Jerusalem. They acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. In other words, they acknowledged that, that Lord Jesus have saved me. 
that the Lord Jesus has set me apart, that he's given me a mission. They acknowledge all of that. And they've given, given us the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas. In other words, they're saying, hey, let's partner together, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, these apostles acknowledges the grace that Paul has received, the mission that Paul has received. They say, hey, let's partner together. We want you to go among the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish people, proclaim the gospel, plant churches, and we, we're going to go to the Jews. Okay, everybody understands that? But here's the fascinating part. They say, but there's one thing we want you to remember. Now, in my mind, when you commission somebody to go and plant churches, there's a ton of things I want them to remember. And to you, for you to say, hey, out of everything, I want you to remember this one thing. Look at, look at the Bible. What does it say? What is this one thing to remember? They ask only that we remember the, what does it say? The poor. And Paul says, and by the way, which I have made every effort to do. Remember the poor. So what is Paul doing? He's remembering the poor. As he's planting churches among the Gentiles. He's instilling into them that taking care of the poor is a biblical practice where Christians are living with open-handed generosity and giving the money that the Lord has given them so that the church can distribute it among the poor, not just inside the church, but also outside the church. Remember the poor. It's a biblical practice. I think you understand the point here, which... If it's biblical, remembering the poor, being generous, then here's something that we have to understand. The question is, why is the call for God's people to be generous and take care of the poor, why is that calling so important? Is it because there's so many poor people there? I think here's an easy answer. The reason why the call to God's people is to take care of the poor and to be generous it's because that is what lies at the heart of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think all of you know that verse, right? Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In other words, I'm not, Paul is not proclaiming this social gospel that the gospel is really taking care of the poor, but rather taking care of the poor as a visible display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what it does is it displays a substitution. And what Paul is doing in using the language of rich and poor, he's really showing us that Jesus substituted himself in the sinner's place. He was sinless and he substituted himself in our place who we were sinful so that we might become sinless and he's just using this idea of money Jesus who was rich who lived a perfect life who knew no sin became sin took on sin and substituted himself in our place so that we who grew up in sin, our nature was sinful, can be set free and delivered, not just from the, per the power of sin, but the penalty of sin, and also one day from the very presence of sin. 
You see, when the people of God live generously, we are displaying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're not being generous so that we can earn God's grace, but rather because we've already received God's grace. It's been lavished upon us. And what did we do to earn God's grace? Absolutely nothing. Us living generously as a display of that grace that has been so lavishly, freely poured upon us through the death of Jesus on the cross. Jonathan Edwards says this, one of the greatest past preachers, Puritan preachers says this, the grace that is made visible in God's people is clearly displayed in the generosity of God's people. In other words, there is a correlation between somebody who has experienced God's grace and understand God's grace and also living with open-handed generosity. And that's the point that he is making. And when we begin to comprehend this amazing grace, it produces a heart of generosity. And, and that's what at the center of the gospel is. God freely giving of himself under no compulsion, under no obligation. He freely gave to those who were in need. And this is why generosity is so important. It is a visible display that you've experienced God's grace and that you're lavishing in God's grace and understanding it. And that's why Paul says, hey, here's the instructions. So if I've experienced God's grace and if I want to live a generous life, what must I do? Great, great question. Paul's going to give you instructions on it. Let's look at verse 2. Here's the instructions. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So, so what Paul is doing is he's giving these church members, he's giving them instructions how to put some of their money aside so that it could be given to the church and the church can distribute it to the poor inside and outside the church. And notice the very first instructions. When should I give? He says, on the first day of every week. Now, there's more than likely this is a Sunday. This is the day that the church comes to gather now, the very first question we sometimes have is, does that mean giving every week is mandated by Scripture? I don't think it's mandated by Scripture because rather it's instructions. But I would say that giving every week depends on your discipline of giving. So, for example, if you have already practiced the discipline of giving, Maybe every week is not something that's going to help you because you're already disciplined in it. But maybe for some of you that have never been giving and you have not de developed that discipline of giving, maybe you need to practice it every single Sunday. So, so I really think when Paul says every week, again, he's giving instructions to all the churches made up of all different people with all different self-discipline levels. And what he is saying is, every week, set aside some of that money so it can be given away. So for some of you, maybe you've never done that, I would recommend do it weekly. 
Look at your budget, look at the money that you spend, and out of that portion, set aside every week so that you can give. Um, Look at the second one on the first day of every week. Each of you is to set some things aside. So every week, with what result, you used to set aside some money. Put it aside, store it up, not for yourself, but give it away. And here's the question. Okay, every week, set some money aside. How much, Paul? How much, Paul? He says, look at this. I wish you would just give us a number because it just makes life easier. He says, think, keep, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. How much? Well, and how you're prospering. This qualifies the amount of a believer should give in accordance with his income. If you look at 2 Corinthians, quickly go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3. He doesn't give an amount either, which is very frustrating. He he says this, I'm just being honest. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. He's talking about the churches of Macedonia, how they're giving. He says, I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord. How much is this church given? According to their ability. And even for some of them beyond their ability. Look at, look at verse 11. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. You give according to how you're prospering. You give according to how the Lord is is blessing you. Now for some of you are like, well, I don't feel real blessed. I don't feel like I have a whole lot. Let's just be honest. You have way more than the rest of the world. And this is why I do believe Paul teaches that a percentage. Because let's just be honest, $100 for you is not the same as $100 for somebody else. Uh, You blow $100 on eating out at a restaurant, and for some of you, $100 is the whole budget for groceries for the week. You give in accordance with your income. Now, I don't want to get into the whole tithing debate because we need to move on. Uh, should every Christian tithe? And I would say, what, well, minimum yes, and at maximum no. And, and so here's a quote who's somebody who kind of argues against tithing, and this is what he says. And I think he has a good point. He says, uh, David uh, Grotia, he wrote, he wrote this book um, refuting top arguments for tithing. This is what he says, and, and you'll see my point. He says, if the foundation of giving is our relationship with God, and the grace and love he gives us. And if the amount we give is based on what God blesses us with, what we determine in our heart, the needs of those ministering to us, the needs of fellowship and generosity, then why only give 10%? God's people should live generously. Why? Because we have so generously received so much from the Lord. It is a visible display of the grace that has been lavished upon us. And giving our money away and taking care of the poor is a discipline that all of us need to be diligently involved in.
And as much as we're trying to self-justify and find loopholes, let's just be honest, there's no loophole. Even if you say tithing is not biblical, then you can just use this David's quote and saying, okay, then why just give 10%? Give more. So what purpose? Why, why give? Look at uh, first, first Corinthians 16 again. He says, so that no collection will need to be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. In other words, what Paul is saying is, so don't have to ask. You already know ahead of time. It's a discipline that you're involved in. So that this money can be taken and given to the church in Jerusalem and they can take care of the poor people inside their church and outside their church. So in in three things, what's Paul instructing us when it comes to giving? His final instructions on giving. The first one, if you're taking notes, and these are really simple. First of all, make a plan. Make a plan. Look at your budget. Am I disciplined in giving? Have I ever given? If I've not given, then do it weekly. If you're already in the habit of doing, that's great. Keep on doing it. Second thing, after you make a plan, prepare for the plan. Make it, prepare for it. And the last one, I think you can guess it, execute it. Just execute the plan. And again, what should motivate us is not the sermon. You shouldn't be feel guilty giving. Okay, we're not, don't worry, we're not going to pass offering plates. We haven't passed offering plates in probably over a decade now. What should motivate you to giving is the grace that has been made visible to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided for you. He has made you rich in Him. And you can freely give because He will continually provide for you. Let's move on. Here's the second part. Now Paul is moving to his final travel plans. Like I said, we'll go from giving to travel plans all over the place. Verse 5 says this, I'll come to you after I pass through Macedonia. For I'll be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll remain with you, even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I'm expecting him with the brothers." Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. And so basically, real quick, Paul shares his travel plans, his plans, Timothy's plans, Apollos' plans. What's Paul going to do? He's going to stay in Ephesus because a door of ministry is opened up. Timothy, what's Timothy going to do? He's going to visit the church in Corinth and Paul is telling the church in Corinth, hey guys, can you, um, can you practice hospitality to this brother? Can you respect him? Can you honor him? He's doing the Lord's work. Give him what he needs. Strengthen him so he can continue to do the Lord's work. And then for Apollos, uh, Paul says, yeah, I try to tell him to come. He doesn't want to come now. Why? We don't know. Maybe he's still angry at the church in Corinth. But what it does show us is this. Remember, um, 
in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, there was a dispute with the, 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 the leaders, the, the members arguing about the leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. What's Paul doing? He's not territorial saying, hey, get, get away from my people. But, but he is saying, hey, brother, we're, we're in this together. We're doing the Lord's work together. Can you visit these brothers and sisters? Can you encourage them? This is what it's showing the church of Corinth, that, that, the, that the workers, co-workers of the gospel are unified. And eventually, Apollos will come and visit. And then Paul wraps up his final commands. Look at verse 13. We'll spend some time here and then, and then wrap it up. It says, be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanas, Fortunatus, Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. Notice these final commands that, that Paul gives them in verse 13. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, be alert. Some of your translations, it says, be watchful. In other words, what was Paul telling them? Be in constant readiness. Wake up. Look around you. Be watchful for what's going on. For what? What should they need to be ready for? What should they be watchful for? I think it's anything that could move you away from the gospel. And the reason why I say that is because look at the second command if you're taking notes. Stand firm in the, the faith. Stand firm in the faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I want you to be alert. I want you to pay attention to what is going on around you. I don't want you to go in cruise control mode where you just kind of take your foot off the pedal and just let the car do its work. No, I want you to pay attention to anything that might move you away from the gospel. Any lies that the enemy might feed you were thinking, well, you, you, you know, you've, you, you need to earn this. You're not measuring up to God's grace, but rather you need to constantly remind yourself of who you are. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. I've been redeemed. I've been declared righteous. And you need to be alert from anything that would move you away from faith because you're saved by God's grace in what Christ has done through faith. But that faith is not dead. What does that faith do? That faith produces works. Be alert. Because what is the enemy going to do? It's going to feed you lies. It's going to try to move you away. And if you're not paying attention, and if you're going on cruise control, you slowly but surely drift away. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. I think it's almost a theme that the Lord has just been laying on my heart here. I've been talking in the Gospel Project about it. I've been talking about in our life group about it. I'm talking about on Sunday mornings about it. Do you know what you believe as a Christian? Do you know why you believe it? How can you start stand firm in the faith if you don't know what you believe? 
This is why it's so important for us to know the Bible. This is why it's so important for us to understand the fundamentals of the faith. And not just recite it, but be able to explain it and be able to look at Scripture and say, why do we believe this? You need to be able to stand firm in the faith because if you're not, last week, remember we quoted Ephesians chapter 4, you'll be tossed to and throw by every winds of doctrine, by the waves of the cunningness and deceitfulness of, 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 of man. Stand firm in the faith. And look at the third instruction here. He says, be courageous, be strong. Um, some of your translations in the footnote says, act like men. I just love that. Maybe it's not, it's probably more relevant because we don't know how to act like men in the 21st century. Men think they're women. No. Come on, man. Act like a man. Be strong. Be courageous. It doesn't mean be domineering. It doesn't mean being a bully, but rather strong. You see, here's what it looks like. Like for you to stand firm on the faith and hold firm to your biblical conviction requires you to be courageous and strong to stand up for what is right and say no to what is wrong. And you are going to lose friends over this. You're going to lose family members over this. If everybody abandons you and wants nothing to do with you because of your biblical conviction, Will you, stand, will you still stand firm? That requires strength. That requires courage. But if, you are, if you're a man pleaser and want the approval of men, guess what's going to happen? You're going to compromise. And this is why Paul says, be strong, be courageous. And I love his uh, fourth command. Because it's so easy for us to act like men. It's like bullying and pushing everybody and name calling. And look at the fourth command. Everybody sees it in verse 14. What does he say? Do everything in, in love. Hey, you jerk. Don't be a jerk. Do everything in love. Everything in love. Be watchful in love. Stand firm in the faith. In love. Be courageous and strong in love. I think verse 14, do everything in love. He's not say something. In other words, how should the church of Corinth have read this letter? In love. How should they follow the commands and the instructions that Paul has given them? In love. How should we live generously and give freely to the poor? In love. How should we submit to church leaders, which is our next point? And love, last, last, and last command is submit to church leaders if you're taking notes. You're like, where do you get that from? Well, look at this, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They're the first fruits and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. They were one of the first converts, and what are they devoting their lives to do? Serving the saints. He says, I urge you. He doesn't say, Hey, please do it, you know. He's like, no, I'm urging you to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. More than likely, him and uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus, if that's however you pronounce their name, maybe they were the elders of the church, leaders in the church. And what is, what is he telling the church in Corinth to do? Submit to them. 
how we ought to submit to them in, in love. Not begrudgingly, not haphazardly, but in love. He says, recognize them. Recognize them because what are they doing? They're serving the Lord. As Paul sends his final greetings, he closes his prayer with a prayer in the yes for request. Look at verse 19. I'll show you the prayer in the last two verses. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Um, let's stop here before we look at the prayer. It just The Lord is just revealing quickly to me. Why do you think Paul is sending them all these greetings? You think that's just kind of politeness, etiquette? No. You know why he's doing that? Because he wants to remind the church of Corinth that they're part of a much bigger family than just this church. You know what we need to constantly be reminded of? We're part of a much bigger church than just this church. Made up of saints of old that have gone before us. Saints all over the world. If you are united with Christ, you are the body of Christ. And that body is way more bigger. That church is way more bigger than you could ever imagine. And really what that's supposed to do is that's supposed to encourage us. Because sometimes we look at our ministry and we're seeing what's going on here. And sometimes there's times when we're discouraged. And what do we need to be reminded of? We're part of something much bigger than we can ever imagine. We're surrounded by brothers and sisters all over the world that speak languages that we don't even know existed. And they're family. They're brothers and sisters. And they're sending you your, their greetings to you and say, in Jesus Christ, we love you, your family brother, your family sister. And then Paul wraps up. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You all can do with, with it whatever you want to. Um, <laughs> culturally appropriate. We already talked about it. Look at his final prayer. Verse 22, he says this. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ. Four requests as he's praying. The first was, those who do not love the Lord, a curse be on him. You're like, that's harsh. What does he mean by that? Um, by Paul praying this, he is reminding them and he is warning them. Because here's the reality. In every church, even though you might be a member you might not be a Christian. We see that in the church of Corinth. There were some people that were members of that church, and we look at what they did, and we look at it, and we don't even know them or the background, and we're like, that's not how Christians act. And what Paul is doing is praying, saying that those who do not love the Lord are cursed beyond him. That's just mean, Paul. No, that's loving because you know what he's doing? He's warning them and saying, hey, if you continue down that path, if there's no evidence of faith, if there's no love and effectual love for the Lord Jesus, you will continue to remain under a curse, the curse of sin and death for all of eternity. 
And so his very first prayer request is for those who might not be believers in the church. And he's saying, wake up. Do not remain under that curse. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Think about the amazing grace he's lavished upon you. Don't squander it. And then he says, the second one, he says, may the Lord return. And Aramaic, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. If Paul prayed it in his day, how much more should we pray it in our day? <laughs> it's like the more you watch the news or the more people share with what's going on, my only response can now be, come Lord Jesus, come. All the horrendous things that are going on in our culture, in our society, that's going on in the world, all the war crimes that are being committed, all the heinous acts that we probably even don't, don't know a percentage of. We can only say, come Lord Jesus, come. And that's what Paul's longing for. That's what we should be longing for. Come Lord Jesus, come. And then the third thing he prays for, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. What does he mean by that? Paul prays. That the, that the grace that flows to them while they're reading this letter, that that grace would remain with them as they stop reading the letter and going on different ways. In other words, that they will constantly be reminded of God's grace that has been so freely lavished on them. The grace that has saved them is the grace that's going to help them to endure. The grace that's going to help them to be watchful, to remain strong and courageous and steadfast, firm in the faith, submitting to leaders, doing everything in love. That is all God's grace strengthening us, encouraging us. And he says, may you constantly be reminded of God's grace in your life. In other words, don't ever move away from God's grace. If you're struggling in an area, you know what you need? You need grace. You need grace to convict you. You need grace to strengthen you. You need grace to enable you. May you be reminded of God's grace. And, and guess what? How does God distribute His grace? Freely abundantly, amazingly, not haphazardly and, and little portions here and little portions there, but he overwhelms us with his incredible grace. And Paul says, I want you to be reminded of his overwhelming grace as you read this letter and as you move away from this letter and you continue in your Christian walk. Be reminded of his grace. And then the last one he says, may... My love, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. In other words, may you know that I love you and that as I'm writing to you, I love you. And not just me that loves you. What is that love ultimately in? Christ Jesus. It's another way of saying, hey guys, Jesus loves you. I know Church of Corinth, you guys are failing. You're a hot mess. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He bought you. He's committed to you. He's going to perfect you. I know Forest Park, you are a hot mess. And you have a ton of work to do. And there's certain things we need to change. But Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus is committed to perfecting you. So we've been all over the place. What is the main theme you've seen from beginning to end? God's amazing grace displayed in Jesus. Why should you give? Because I asked you and we need money. 
well, we do need money, but you should give because God has so freely given to you. When we take care of the poor, we're displaying the gospel. We should be watchful. We should stand firm. And we can be strong. And we can do everything in love because of God's amazing grace. And as we get to the table, again, what does this remind us of? God's incredible grace that has been lavished on us by sending his son to live a life we could not live and die a death all of us deserve to die. Think about his amazing grace. Though he was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, brother and sister? Do you believe that? Are you clinging to that? Let me pray for us as we get to the table. Lord, thank you for your incredible grace that you've lavished on us. How you've not just said you loved us, but you showed us how you loved us by sending your son to die for us. You gave us something we did not deserve. We all deserve to be put to death. And you gave us life through Jesus. Lord, help us to never move from that. As the enemy is trying to kill, steal, and to destroy and rob us from these things, Lord, help us to continually recalibrate and fix our eyes on you. May everything we do, everything we say, not be something we do begrudgingly, not be something that we try to earn or achieve, perform, but may we do it out of your performance, from your performance, and from what was been given to us. And may it be a display of your grace and your love that you've shown to us.